This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's the week of January 30th, 2017, and this is Michael Howie welcoming you to episode 414 of Defender Radio. Compassion is something we at the Fur Bears talk a lot about. But how do we speak with compassion? And, in a world of seemingly massive cultural, social, and political divides, is it even worthwhile to try? Compassionate communication is a concept that's been around for some time. It frequently includes the use of self-awareness, empathy, and honest self-expression. In the case of the Fur Bears, it is often cited for how we communicate to others our facts and ethical stances on the use of fur, on wildlife conservation, and in the development of a more compassionate and empathetical culture. But it isn't always easy. We see, hear, and read the harrowing truths of how animals are treated. We're exposed to systemic hate of races, cultures, and species in the daily news. And we're also confronted with the realities of confirmation bias, sensationalism, and misinformation mixed in with the reliable information. Sorting through all of this, and finding a way to be more compassionate in our communication is a struggle. And that's why this week we talked with Dr. Carrie Packwood-Freeman. Dr. Packwood-Freeman is a tenured associate professor of communication at Georgia State University, hosts a radio talk show, and co-authored a report on how the media should be covering animals, which, which, to this day, remains the document that most influenced how I approached my job as a journalist and continue to work as a digital content specialist. In this open and honest conversation, Dr. Packwood Freeman joined Defender Radio to explore topics of communicating across social divides, internet trolls, compassion in times of conflict, and the daily tools we can use to improve our compassionate communication skills. We're going to talk about sort of two two themes today, I think. One is uh, media literacy, uh, sort of for consumers, and the other is compassionate communication. And your role um, as an advocate and, and as a you have a, a radio show and you you teach communications um, sort of makes you the ideal person to talk with about this. Um, and I think, especially given sort of the the climate with media, particularly in the United States in these last months, and certainly in the last week. Um, it's, it's a good opportunity to talk about media literacy. Um, so how would you sort of explain what media literacy is for the general public? I would probably just say that that's, that it's a critical approach to reading media. Like we think of literacy as mostly meaning that we know how to read like words on paper, but if you have media literacy, um, you understand how to read a press conference or a film or a news story or an advertisement and look at it in a critical way so that you understand how it was produced or what ideologies are present um, or whether you're trying to be persuaded um, so you can or whether it was um, a paid message that's an advertisement or not so you can tell what the interest was of the person who produced it, and that maybe helps you understand how you should um, receive it. it. You know, it'd be thinking a little bit more in a critical way about it. Yeah, and it's um, and, and and I promised to our listeners that we are going to turn the conversation over to animals in a minute. Um, but one of the things too that's come up 
Um, and this is, it's sort of an interesting, I, I don't know what the, the actual term for the diagram is. You've probably seen it circulating where it shows the bias as well as reliability of various news organizations uh, that's been circulating on social media. Um, oh, I have not seen that yet. Oh, okay. It's really interesting. So I'll, the, look, I'll look it up. Yeah. yeah, the center line is unbiased or least bias. Uh, and then the top, so it's uh, horizontal uh, with lines sort of escalating to each side. And then there's three levels uh, vertically in the middle. The top one is in-depth news analysis. And that's where you get... Um, and I'll try and remember some of the ones, but it's, I think Wall Street Journal was listed on that circle. Um, and some of those sort of new uh, news magazines, um, as well as, you know, the Atlantic, uh, Atlantean and all those. And then the second one is, the second bubble down is your uh, routers, uh, uh, associated press, wire services that, while they do provide good news, uh, their focus is more sort of that in and out. And then the bottom is your community newspaper, local news stations, CNN, places where it's very quick snippets of news, but relatively unbiased. And then it escalates out on either side. On the left, it leans into the more liberal uh, organizations, and on the right, the more conservative. And the extremes are going to be pretty obvious. Uh, you know, Huffington Post, MSNBC, as you go to the left, uh, Breibart, Fox News, as you go to the right. Um, and what I find interesting is on social media, we're talking and on news websites, we're talking a lot more about that kind of bias. But what I find we don't necessarily talk about as much is the confirmation bias. So that's us looking at this issue. Um, uh, sorry, that was a dog knocking something over in another room. Um, we're, we're looking at the issue of bias, but not necessarily how we are willing to accept that we are the source of a bias. So uh, again, it's that confirmation bias of we're more ready to accept information that is in line with our beliefs, uh, regardless of what information is being presented. Right. Um, so with that in mind, how do we... And that's it's it to me. It's maybe one of the the most important parts is how do we address that without turning it into a wild conspiracy theory? And that's kind of what I see a lot of the conversations very quickly devolve down into is when you talk with someone who who sources you know Breibart for all of their news, uh, and you say, look, like it's going to be slanted that way, and that's why you agree with it because that's your political view, or uh, you know, vice versa, Huffington Post. Um, how do we sort of communicate to people? what confirmation bias is and how to try and prevent it from too heavily influencing how they uh, digest uh, information and, and media. Right. I mean, it, there's so much they call the media now, especially with social media, an echo chamber or like that it mirrors back our own beliefs to us. And that makes us feel more comfortable psychologically. Um, and it's just easier to deal with. So there's re no matter what your political beliefs are, you might, like you said, kind of gravitate towards that for some psychological comfort. Um, but it, I guess the biggest thing could be a, an awareness that you too are biased and, you know, recognizing that maybe you need to tune into multiple sources. I mean, cause sometimes like just the other day I was, um, looking, I was looking at MSNBC and 
um, CNN and Fox News. And it was kind of circulating back and forth between them after a press conference with Donald Trump. Um, and just kind of noticing wh what they were focusing on and that was different. And that was educational for me, you know, to, to see that rather than just watching CNN or MSNBC, because I don't really spend as much time watching Fox News. Um, but I still had a bias, like I, some of the things I saw they were saying, I really didn't agree with. So I don't know that I was really enlightening myself by doing that. You know, like I was looking at this other news source and I was being educated as to what they were talking about, but I still found myself saying, well, that's not fair, or they're ignoring that, or they're being fair to the Black Lives, unfair to the Black Lives Matter movement. And, you know, they weren't focusing on the same things. So it is difficult. It, it really is difficult to do that besides just some level of self-awareness um, that you too have uh, want to find things that reinforce the way you look at the world. So, you know, then it's just being willing, are we willing to talk to other people on social media or in real life um, who have different beliefs? And are, you know, but even if we do, are we going to reach an impasse where we because we're both exposed to different types of information um, and then we have different beliefs based on that, and even different notions of the truth, we still might get stalled in our conversation with that person. As much as we're seeking to understand them, we may just feel that they're so off base that we can't go any further in the conversation. Mm -hmm. um, and so it, I, it, I don't know if it's like this in all countries, but in the United States, it seem, it feels like a very polarizing place to live because we have these two dominant political parties instead of lots of different political parties. Um, and it's almost like you have to take sides and then people all accuse the media, the news media of taking sides, and then they demonize the other side. Um, and it's, it's very exhausting. I feel like personally. Absolutely. I, and you, you know, I'm a media junkie and I read, uh, uh, multiple news sites every day is part of my job. Um, and in Canada, where we have multiple political parties, um, it still tends to get driven into left or right. Um, I see. You know, I, I have... Uh, my political beliefs are very clearly left-leading. I don't think anyone doubts that. Um, but I am also very conscious of economic concerns... And I, I read a lot about alternative economic solutions and things like that, looking in, in parts of Europe at what they're doing. Um, yeah. But when you try and have that conversation of, it's like, yes, we need social programs, but we also need business. It, people don't know how to respond to that. I, that that's what I find fascinating. Um, is people? You mean if you try to mix your like yeah. a, a leftist belief with kind of more conservative belief, or you know, then people are like, "No, you have to side with us on all issues." Yeah, it's it's or you, something like you, that. Yeah. You're either with us or against us. Um, and again, even in Canada, where we have, uh, well, we've got three dominant parties with uh, at least two others that sort of have have a role. Um, so we have our liberals and our conservatives, uh, as you do with your Democrats and Republicans. We also then have the NDP, which is more steeped in social values. Uh, we have, and that's sort of the third party, uh, which came very close to being the second party a couple of years ago. And then we've got the Green Party, which is, while socially responsible, does have a lot of very interesting and progressive fiscal views. And the Bloc de Québécois, which represents uh, a lot of people in Quebec, which, as you may know, is a very culturally 
separate part of Canada in many ways. Um, but it still tends to get broken down into left or right. Um, even though a lot of our right-wing views are probably liberal by American standards. Um, so it's, it is very interesting how we try and force people into these these labels or these worldviews that we can then argue against. And we don't acknowledge that there is this swamp of grayness between all of these different ideologies. Um, does that take away from our ability to communicate and grow? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I, that's such a big question. I don't really think I can Oh, I, I, I want a yes or no answer here. <laughs> you want me to... I mean, one of the things as an academic that I try to do is embrace complexity, which is something that nobody likes in a soundbite culture. <laughs> but just the idea that sometimes the more I know, the less I know, and that it's humbling to be like that, um, because you understand that things are complicated, you know, and that, um, and there's always, a, it's, it's interesting also to examine your own ethical philosophies that drive your ideologies. And I tried to do this when I was writing my dissertation and, and my book, Framing Farming. I had the time to really analyze animal rights in particular and environmental ethics and realize it's as much as I'm beholden to it and I believe in it, that it does have some flaws to it that's not perfect. But that doesn't mean that then the side that might favor animal exploitation or um, use of natural resources doesn't have some, you know, good points as well, but I also don't have to go for it 100%. But I think it's useful to acknowledge where your own philosophies have some weaknesses or where they might break down and have some contradictions and tensions you can't quite reconcile. And even at the other side, um, even like in something like um, conservatives being considered anti-gay, and a lot of times it is associated like that. It, it may help a little to even just think, well, maybe they're trying to come at things from the right place or the right heart and saying they want the family unit to be protective. They want to protect children. and But they see the family unit in a different way than I do, you know, the ideal family unit. Um, and so even though you may not, again, agree with it and you don't want them pushing laws that discriminate against LGBTQ people, it may help to think that they it's not necessarily generated by hate necessarily. Maybe it is for some people, but it's a different view of what an ideal world would be or what creates um, the best society or something. Um, so at least you can have some kind of empathy. And I mean, some of the things they'll say, too, in terms of being more persuasive is, is that if you are making an argument for something, you can where the other side of the person you were debating has some good points. Like, don't act like every single thing they say has no merit at all. And everything you say makes total sense. Um, you know, recognize where you do have some overlap and at least, you know, concede a little bit if you think it's authentic to do so. And it helps. That helps a little. But I still think you should stand up for what you believe in <laughs> at the same time and be authentic in the way that you speak about your values. Um I'm not somebody who likes to kind of water down the things I want to say just to make them appealing to the mainstream, because then I think we're never going to push for more radical change that I think we need if I'm always trying to not sound so different or radical, you know? So that's why I do I do advocate for some what I call ideological authenticity, but I feel that that can be communicated in a compassionate way 
um, and in a way that where you're still trying to kind of find common values without um, belittling or watering down or avoiding your actual agenda. I think you should be upfront if you're an activist or, you know, what your agenda is and what your values are and, and what the vision of the kind of world you want is. And then no one really can accuse you of hiding something, you know, hiding your real quote unquote agenda. I don't think an agenda is a bad thing to have, but the word agenda has, you know, become negative. Oh, it certainly has. Um, I'm just thinking of all the memes I've seen about the word agenda. Um, and um, it's, it, it, it is, again, it's one of those tools being used to try and divide, I think, to say you have an agenda. So of course I do. Everybody, I think, has an yeah, agenda. Yeah, like, so go ahead and admit what it is. Um, yeah. <laughs> now, and that actually came up. A, a good example of that, I was at a, uh, I was being interviewed by a legislative committee on um, uh, the fur trade. And um, they said, well, you want to end all trapping. Uh, and that's why you're trying to do this. I said, yes, I do. But I also want to end world hunger and I'll still donate to the food bank. Like, because my yeah. ultimate goal is down the road does not mean that these steps to get there are unreasonable. Um, yeah. And uh, uh, I, I, but I like that you admitted that, like when he, because that happens a lot with animal rights and animal protection. They're, you know, they're saying, well, they don't want just meatless Monday. They don't want you to eat animals at all. Or they don't want you to just get rid of fur trim. They don't want you to ever kill a forbearing animal. So if that is what you believe and your group believes, you should say, yes, that, that is what we want because <laughs> it would be the most compassionate and fair thing to do for the other animals. So yeah, ultimately, but I'm taking things in steps, you know, so you're being honest mm -hmm. about you, you, the goals or values of your organization or yourself. Well, and th this is something, and uh, we're, we're kind of diving into the compassionate communication side of this. Um, and, and I feel like this is going to be something of a fluid conversation. Um, but talking about empathy, and this is, you know, from the the definition of nonviolent communication or compassionate communication dating back, uh, what, 40 years now, 50 years. Um, and how you explain it, there's a lot of talk about finding empathy. And that's what you were just saying is even just trying to identify uh, with the person you you oppose, that they may have things you agree with. One of the things I find when I talk about compassion, because uh, I, I strongly believe in compassionate communication uh, as the way forward uh, for animal welfare, animal rights, and uh, a more humane world. Um, but one of the things I'll say is even when we, we oppose someone, we have to have compassion for them. And someone says, I could never feel empathy for someone who enjoys killing an animal. I have a lot of trouble. Well, there's two parts of this. One, I have a lot of trouble responding to that because it's it's a very it's a fair point. Is if we so firmly believe that violence against non-human animals cannot be excused, then how can we have empathy for someone to whom that is a very important part of life? Um. And the, yeah, like they're intentionally killing animals is not an accident. Yes, so these are yeah. these are people who <clears throat> enjoy going out and trapping animals or killing animals for whatever reason they they may have. And then the other part of that, uh, and it's sort of a secondary follow up, is trying to communicate again from my perspective, um, the concept of if you want to be compassionate towards all life, that includes the people who want to do.
harm. And in that, I, I mean when we see people say, uh, if you hurt an animal, I'll kill you. And I, I, I see a very clear contradiction in that statement. Um, but trying to express why I find it problematic is also something I struggle with. So I guess sort of the, the two-part question is, one, how do we talk about finding empathy with those who would do us harm or do harm to non-human animals we believe should not be harmed? And then on that secondary part, how do we express that empathy has to always exist to a degree, um, even in the face of violence or hate? Are you thinking, Michael, of the way we communicate to our fellow activists in our animal protection groups? Like, how do we talk to them when they're responding to us? Like, but I'm so angry, you know, at these people for what they're doing. Yes. And also, how do we... And so how do I communicate yeah, with... Yeah, how do I communicate with them as a communications person? But also then, how do we communicate that outward? So not just within our community or within our organizations, but to people who are curious about this or people who say, you know, I have a dog, but I wear fur um, and I want to talk about that now, you know, just sort of as a, a basic function of compassionate communication. Yeah, well, certainly it makes you more credible if you're asked as, as a speaker, it makes you more credible if you're asking for a certain value to be applied in this case, compassion and fairness that you, if you're embodying that, you know, then people will have some more respect, I think, for, for what you're saying. And so, so that's something maybe a challenge for some of us if we get so upset and rightly so about seeing so much violence, you know, can we still communicate in a way that embodies and, and serves as a role model for the kind of way we want other people to be? Um, but it may be harder if you're, if you're encountering somebody, like if you're doing hunt sabotage or something and you're out there actually dealing, trying to stop a hunter in his tracks out in the woods is a little bit different than encountering that same person, um, at a, you know, at a coffee shop or something like that. So I do think maybe having a neutral place, um, is a better way to start the conversation, because uh, sometimes it can be even hard if, because I work a lot on farmed animal issues, like to discuss whether or not you should eat animals while somebody is sitting next to you at dinner eating a burger is a, is not the best place to have that conversation, you know, because the naturally they're going to be a little bit more on guard in that instance. And it makes everything you're saying more of an accusation, um, so sometimes I'll steer away based on the the situation itself. Like this isn't the best time to have this conversation. Um, I have to say that sometimes I avoid conflict. So I'm not really, I'm not bragging about this, but like if I really think someone is asking me about my veganism just because they want to kind of make fun of me or I don't know, they're just, they're not authentically interested in change themselves, then I don't really want to invest much time in, in just a conflict-laden conversation. Um, and so, and maybe that's the more stereotypically feminine side of me that I'm, I'm, I'm not an activist because I want to engage in debate and win. Like that's not, I don't enjoy the tension part of activism. I just like, well, I just want to say to people, hey, wouldn't this be better? Did you know these terrible things were going on? Don't you, you know, care about these kinds of things? And then I, I, I really want people to be like, wow, I didn't know that. Or yeah, I do agree. Thanks for letting me know. Like, that's what I really want to happen. 
And so it is always constantly disappointing that that's not always the response that people have. But, you know, sometimes you're planting a seed and people might be defensive to your face, you know, about things and make fun of you or ridicule your position as being overly sentimental. But they might maybe secretly agree with you or a few years down the line, they'll end up agreeing with you. Perhaps you don't know. But people put up a front, you know, because they if like if they've always been a hunter or their parents did that, it's maybe too insulting to their whole knowledge of their self-identity to accept that so easily that maybe that's not the best, you know, that doesn't fit with some other values they have. So there people probably don't come around to changing long-held habits and beliefs really quickly just because they encounter a logical argument mm-hmm. about it. Well, and that's, you know, I think that's a very good point. Um, but I do, I, I was just thinking, I said uh, in my sort of my rambling questions to um, people who may want to do harm to us, and I want to clarify, I mean more or less emotional harm as in uh, trolling on Facebook and Twitter, uh, because there are people in both our countries, especially your country right now, who are fearing very real harm um, from people who have differing uh, political views. So I want to be very clear that that is not uh, what I reference in this. Um, but yeah, I'm somebody. Can I say that I just avoid the those kinds of comment that you know, like when if I had some like an op-ed posted or something online, I actually don't like to look at the comments because, and that's maybe again is avoidance, and I shouldn't do that. But I don't want to just kind of get into some war with somebody. I, I if especially if it's not a civil discourse, <laughs> and people are making stupid kind of thoughtless remarks that are kind of done in an anonymous setting, you know, how online can be somewhat anonymous. And that is almost like road rage or something. And I don't really want to participate in it. So I just avoid it. But again, that's my choice to do that, because I don't think it's the right setting. Well, you know, I have a serious. Yeah, I actually have a note here to talk about trolls um, with you. And this is something that I, I've been thinking whether or not I should write about this or, or just sort of continue with my practice, but we get people on our Facebook page, the Fur Bears, um, who ask occasionally very genuine questions about the, you know, uh, coyote overpopulation or, um, you know, Aboriginal rights, First Nation rights, um, about sustenance hunting, about a lot of different things. Yeah. And I try and answer them honestly and openly. Um, practicing, as we've been talking about, sort of that compassionate communication and understanding they all come from different places. Um, and I of I try to not have our supporters then sort of pile on. Uh, because some, if someone's asking a very genuine question, I want to give them a very genuine Yeah, like answer. they're seeking to understand. But, like they're trying to yes, understand. Absolutely. And, th- and realistically, those are the people we need to be talking with. Um, yeah. But then we get people who come on um, and, you know, their profile picture is a strung up coyote and they say the only good coyote oh, is a dead coyote. I just delete them because they're, they're, they are right. there to I... cause problems. They are not there to advance a conversation or ask a question. They are gaining enjoyment from the harassment. Right, from conflict. Exactly. And I can't, I don't like that at all. It makes me very nervous and anxious. Um, and so, yeah, I just avoid that. <laughs> like... Yeah, I don't want to engage with that. But yeah, if someone has a real question like, oh, you know, uh, I don't understand if you're meeting your nutritional needs on a vegan diet, like that doesn't seem like it's enough protein or, you know, that, you know, they're maybe still indicating they don't really want to go vegan, but they're kind of trying to (laughs) understand. And I think that's fine. 
Yeah, but if someone just wants to kind of call you names and say, I love eating animals and stuff, it's like, well, okay. I, I don't really think we can have a useful conversation because that's not what they want. Exactly. And I think they don't really want to change or expand their mind, in my opinion. Yeah, and I think that's really what we uh, as advocates and communicators need to remember is that not all of them are are doing this be- like the reason they are on the page, the reason they are asking these questions or pushing these buttons is because they want that conflict. I think you're absolutely right. And it is a waste of our time yes. as a resource and, and frankly, our, our emotional it stability is. to engage with it them. It is. And I know that they say, they say that to people who leaflet, you know, who do all the vegan outreach leafleting and stuff all the time that, you know, when you're handing out literature to lots of different people, some people might then come up to you and, and which, you, you know, that's great. You want them to kind of say, oh, I looked at what you were handing out and I have a question I want to talk about. But if somebody really wants to just kind of get in an argument with you about it because they seem to like arguing or winning and that keeps you from leafleting other people. Um, oh, sorry, my phone's ringing. If that keeps you from leafleting other people that might be changed. Don't waste your time spending 10 minutes talking to some argumentative person. Um, I mean, be polite to them, but um, you might say, I guess we might need to agree to disagree on this. I need to get back to leafleting, you know, something because that's just not worth you getting all riled up and getting burnt out. Um, When you could have more positive conversations with people who are really kind of like, Oh, I didn't know factory farming was happening or I didn't really know there were so many vegan products that I could eat that I might like, you know, people who have real questions that you can answer. Cause we have to treat ourselves compassionately too, you know, like, or else you'll burn out and you won't do anything. You know, you have to ask yourself, what kind of person am I? What do I like to do? And maybe for some people, the way they contribute is because they like to bake vegan food and then they sell it and bring it to places. That's very positive. And that's all they can handle emotionally. They don't want to get debates with people. They just want to, you know, make people happy with vegan cupcakes. And that's great. That's their contribution because that's what they can handle emotionally. And that's what they can contribute or they want to do artwork or other things. Not everybody has to be an activist in terms of a protest or like an angry type of activism. Um, Because I personally don't like that very often. I don't even usually go to demonstrations or protests. I feel kind of guilty that I don't go to them that often, although I did just go to the one that was the anti-Trump protest (laughs) all over the world that we have on January 21st. Um, But normally I prefer more educational outreach rather than um, marching or demonstrations. But I, I respect my fellow activists who take the time to go out and march, you know, that if that's more authentic for them, I just think we need to be careful not to make our other activist friends feel guilty if we put on some kind of event and it's not their style or something or it makes them and they don't really want to participate and they're doing other things. We don't want to make them feel guilty that they're not doing enough or whatever, or else that's not going to help keep people in the movement. Absolutely. Um, and I think something that's worth talking about too is the validity of compassionate communication and education in terms of creating change. Um, and that's, I, I don't know how to ask this question. I don't know how to measure this or anything, but in how we define compassionate communication, which is partly finding empathy, um, being open, um, and trying to express ourselves honestly, um, and we sort of provide information to others with that in our, our minds and our hearts, 
is it an effective way of eliciting change over time? Is there a way of knowing mm-hmm. that? Oh, you mean like what works better, like winning arguments or being more forceful versus being uh, like, do we know this well, for sure? Well, not necessarily what work. Yeah, not necessarily what works better, but does uh, the compassionate communication itself work? Mm. Um, you know, we know some people will be influenced with certain tactics. Um, sometimes, you know, seeing the violent images is what right. will get people to change their minds. Um, we know that uh, because a lot of people who have changed their minds say, seeing these images caused me to rethink it. Uh, but with compassionate communication, it's not as an immediate right. thing necessarily, right. uh, or it doesn't it, it doesn't have that visceral component to it. So can we know that it, it is being effective at changing minds or changing belief systems? Yeah. I mean, I don't know if we can know for sure unless people kind of come up and tell you, which sometimes they do like, oh, I've gone vegan or, you know, those kinds of things. Um, and you get that confirmation. Um, but I remember listening to a talk recently uh, by Will Tuttle, who wrote The World Peace Diet and other things. And so he takes a very kind of compassionate spiritual approach. And I think he was saying, like, oftentimes people need to be introduced to a, to an idea seven times or like before they even really start to fully consider it. And then it might take, you know, many years for them to kind of come around to the, this idea. So that made me feel better, the idea that I might be planting seeds with people, you know, that just I, I feel like, honestly, just by us bringing non-human animals into the conversation and bringing their interests up. Now, people still might kind of be take an anthropocentric response to us and think, well, that's not that important. Or what about humans and all that stuff? Um, but the fact that we're willing to take the time to stand up for these vulnerable beings in it matters you know it kind of shows other people hey maybe i shouldn't discount them or ignore them or maybe i do need to think about that um but we we don't know that they're going to stop eating animals immediately but to to me it helps to to think that i'm helping to change the discourse and even like with my students in my classes like okay i teach media classes most of which aren't necessarily environmental classes but at the end of the class, a lot of my students will say, well, you know, I had never really thought about media representations of animals before. And so in this class, you made me think about that because it was just ignored before. So now they've opened up to it and that might they might be more critical than they used to, um, even though I think in academia, it isn't necessarily welcomed always for you to feel like in, in journalism to bring in these other animals and to you stand out as somebody who's different by doing that. Or maybe you don't have the right priorities, right? You know, like, um, don't you know you should be putting humans first all the time? Day to day, um, one of the things that we struggle with is people who, who feel angry at people. Not a not, So we, we, we're speaking on behalf of non-human animals and we feel anger towards people. And that makes that compassionate communication very difficult, I think. And it's fair to say, I mean... You know, we're standing here saying, don't hurt these animals. And on the other side, people are saying, we enjoy hurting these animals. Um, yeah, I'm not impressed with that answer at all. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so how that doesn't make you someone I admire. So, you know, it's like, <laughs> well, so how do we then sort of, with that in mind, practice empathy towards someone like that? Um, you know, and this is something I, I, I'm trying to read as much about compassion as I can from, you know, from scholars like yourself and Mark Beckoff, 
through to you know the, the writings of the Dalai Lama, and um, I, I'm that's one of the ones I have trouble with. Even with everything I, I've been reading, is how do we tell people to be empathetic in situations like that? Yeah, it's difficult because I, I'm not somebody. Um, I'm someone who does get upset and angry, you know, like I, I, like when I'm by myself and I read things and I think someone's a jerk, I'm pretty much saying that or using a cuss word when I'm, you know, by myself, not on the radio or something. But, um, and so I'm not always proud of my, you know, I'm not like Gandhi in my response to these things, you know, um, so uh, maybe I'm not always as compassionate, but I, I I also usually don't encounter these people kind of face to face, you know, as often. So it's more that you're reading or you're hearing about these things on the news or you're seeing some picture and you're just really, again, unimpressed. Um, so, it you know, it is difficult. It is difficult to do because in some ways, anger does drive motivation towards um, activism. So that doesn't mean you have to hate that person, but it does like in a way it channels the fact that there are people out there who are hurting animals and they're able to get away with it. And and we as, you know, compassionate citizens are not doing enough to stop it is motivating. But I feel like then maybe you can channel your energy towards policymaking or educating other people to join the movement, but not necessarily towards that person who maybe isn't, again, isn't really willing to change or might might want to get in an argument. Because um, a lot of the things that I study are more about the values that we have that we want to promote. And so, and compassion is one value, but so is fairness and, and responsibility and caring. So if we feel like, you know, in, in a way for us to be caring towards you, we'd like to see you being caring towards us and others, you know, that that's what I expect of citizens. And, and so I, I, you know, I am willing to call out somebody if I feel like they're being harsh and disrespectful, which is what's bothering me also about Trump lately. I just don't feel that he's setting the right standard for being compassionate towards others and caring. And so, um, but I, I'm not going to accept that as the new American standard or something, you know, that's not, I'm not accepting that. So I am going to push back on it and say that. But by pushing back, are you more or less exercising your compassion in the face of uh, apathy? Oh, yeah, that's a good way to look at it. (laughs) You know, that um, that doing something and standing up for others is compassionate. Yeah, I mean, I feel like a lot of times I I am aiming my compassion more at the vulnerable, you know, and usually it's the non-human animals or marginalized human groups or something. I'm I'm not maybe putting as much of my energy into being compassionate towards those uh, corporations or others or politicians who are undermining um, protection. You know, that's not exactly where I'm putting my compassion, but I'm also not lashing out irresponsibly at them or or causing any like violence to them either. So, but uh, because I do think, yeah, standing up for those and speaking out for those who can't and who need protection um, is maybe the most important thing, but doing so in a way that people can respect you and your cause, because that's the thing you always represent your movement and your cause. And if you look like somebody that somebody wouldn't even really want to talk to or can't trust or you're totally irrational or something like that. It doesn't really speak well for the whole cause. 
Like I, I have been told like, oh, wow, you make animal rights make so much sense. You know, <laughs> like I never like that. It's not that radical. You know, the concept of it, if, if you talk about it in kind of a logical way, you know, using ethics and values. And um, and so in that way, it's kind of if we want to take it back to the beginning of our conversation where we were talking about bias, like what everybody wants is for their bias or their ideology to be that center point of that diagram you were telling us. Like, that's what you want. Like, you don't want to be the one that's seen as too liberal or too radical. Like, what everybody wants in this ideological struggle is for your version of what's right to be common sense. You know? <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's that's a very good way of putting it, is that, that no one wants to be on the far side of a spectrum. Everyone wants to be the right. center and say, look how reasonable I am. If you have the most power there, that's where yours is the most powerful because it's the most sensible and then everything at it otherwise kind of seems outside of these, you know, symbolic legitimacy boundaries, like it becomes illegitimate or something. So that's why people are always constantly trying to make their views seem popular, you know, because if they're popular, then they're kind of centrist, you know, and if they're centrist, then they have more power behind them or it's more democratic or it's, you know. Because we we are, as humans, are pack animals, and we don't want to be isolated. So part of the reason we seek um, that confirmation bias is because we want to make sure that we're not an outsider in our beliefs. Um, and so, you know, but it, it may be disingenuous how some groups are kind of presenting themselves and their beliefs as common sense and popular. Well, and it's, uh, I want to acknowledge, I don't, think this is necessarily the time or the space to get into it, but um, in a lot of this talking about compassionate communication and just plain communication and activism, um, understanding the role of privilege um, and intersectionality, I think, is very important. Yeah. And that's, again, that's it's an entirely different conversation that I highly encourage people to read about. We yes. simply, I think, are not equipped today to talk about it necessarily. I'm not right. equipped today. Um, I'm still learning a, a, a lot about it, but how that then influences how we see the world. And I think probably the most uh, obvious, it, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of ways to sort of that very clearly demonstrate it. And the one that pops into my mind is um, from uh, the video game and comic book world where, um you know, the the bulk of the audience, white males, are complaining that, for example, the new Iron Man character is going to be uh, a black female. And they're saying, yeah. you know, of the 400 comic book heroes, one of them is now going to be different from me. And I have a problem with that. Oh, my gosh. Right? And that would seem embarrassing for somebody to actually articulate out loud. <laughs> well, and that's that was the point that someone was trying to make. It's like you look at the bulk of all of this. And it is reflective of this white male sort of culture. Yeah. Um, and then that one thing changes that is it's, no longer in line with what they expect as white males. And I am a white male. Um, but, um, you know, all of a sudden, it's it's outrageous. And to me, that was, right. that was a very illuminating example. Um, because it's something I'm familiar with. So I can, I can very much see the, the ridiculousness of, of it when it gets articulated in that manner. Yeah. Um, but I think that's important yeah. again. And something you brought up um, is recognizing that people's experiences are different. And this is something 
again, I, I try and I try and explain frequently on social media, which is not always the best place to do it, but that everyone is sort of on their own place, uh, on a path towards what could yes. be more compassion. And yes. we have to remember that, you know, there are communities. And when I was, you know, in rural Nova Scotia, and I've been in rural Ontario, you meet people whose grandfather hunted, whose father hunted, whose yeah. earliest memories of spending time with the primary role models in their life was around hunting. It is very much imbued in them that trapping rabbit for stew is normal. Right. And after 30 years, 40 years, for someone to come along and say, no, you're morally wrong, um, they're, they're simply not going to just accept that. Because they're like such a large yeah, part of their life experience. insulting to their whole family identity, yeah. Exactly. So it's that trying to recognize that. And again, I think there's some people who, as we've discussed, enjoy the conflict, who want to be problem makers, who we aren't going to convince. Um, and to whom it eventually becomes, you know, uh, detrimental to our, our ability to communicate with the masses as a whole. Um, but there is a large number of people, I think, who simply... You know, as we explain and as we show uh, our compassion, may be more inclined to develop that compassion. But we have to remember where they're coming from. Yeah, because I, I mean, I like to sometimes admit to myself that, yeah, I grew up more in the suburbs and I didn't have a family history of hunting out <clears throat> outside of some fishing was the only type of hunting that I was exposed to as a kid growing up in Florida. Um but so it's not, it's easy for me then to or relatively easy for me to avoid eating animals because it's not that threatening to all my other relatives or our whole history or the fact that I talk out about hunting I don't really have a lot of relatives who do that so I you know it begin it becomes easier for me I'm in a position where it's not as threatening to my identity and social circle and I know that's not the same for everyone else. So you have to recognize it's it takes more courage or it's much more radical for other people um, to not wear fur or not hunt or not eat animals or some of these other things based on their family history. Yeah. And so you have to have kind of more sympathy for that. Well, and that's, you know, uh, uh, going to public meetings and stuff and sitting next to the trappers who always would come out in force. Uh, so it would be me and then you know, five trappers in a row. Um, and listening to them talk about, you know, the one guy's kid is trying out for the soccer team and the other guy is complaining that the credit card interest rate is too high. And you really do get that sort of glimpse into the fact that realistically their lives are 80% the same as mine. You know, they, they worry about their family. Yeah. They worry about paying bills. Uh, they're talking about, you know, who won the football game. Um, and the while that 20% is, you know, completely different, there is still 80% that is the same. Mm, um, yeah. And that's that finding that core of empathy. Um, but it's, it's, as you said, sort of recognizing the anger is normal and healthy. It's what we then do with it. And it's this big... Right. How do you channel yeah, it? Big, yeah. I feel like I'm stuck in this circular argument with myself. Um because it's it's recognizing our emotional reaction is necessary and, and healthy and ultimately beneficial, but that we need to have compassion to move forward. Um, I guess uh, to wrap up, I kind of want to ask you, what are daily tools people can sort of explore or, or 
day-to-day life skills we should be working towards that help us both be more compassionate wherever we are and whoever we are um, and help us communicate in that sort of open-armed, beneficial way for the animals. Yeah, well, one of the things that I've been trying to do to reduce anxiety (laughs) is to do some like positive affirmations and like small meditations. And so like to start off the day, I'll, you know, ask myself questions about what do I appreciate in my life, you know, um, and then I'll ask, I'll say something like affirm a positive belief. And what I want to try to do there, and one of the beliefs I often say is that I think that most people care about each other, or I think most people care about animals, you know, and I say that to myself because it, it makes me feel better. And I think it's true on many levels, but they just maybe aren't expressing their caring because, you know, a lot of the uh, violence is kind of hidden behind industry and other things, or they're not asked to express their caring in certain ways. But um, that makes me feel better and more hopeful, you know? So I kind of try to remind myself about that belief about humanity because I, and I also have this thing that I painted that I put on my wall that says, um, Respect for ecology, love for animality, animals, and faith in humanity. Like that's the that's what I need or that I want from everybody's for us to respect the ecological principles and be responsible there, and and love actually feel compassion and love for living sentient beings. And then for me, I need to have faith in humanity. You know, like I have to remind myself that we as a species, a human species, have the capacity to be extremely compassionate. We have that capacity. We don't always use it, obviously. But what I have to constantly do is not lose my faith in humanity, you know, or else then it's not even a point to even be an activist at all. And you should just kind of give up. Right. Um, So that's what I have to work on the most is being hopeful that humans can actually change and and start doing something about this ecological crisis and caring more about others um that that requires a lot of hopefulness so that's what you have to work on in yourself yeah and you know i i think it's uh i i'm relatively sure is the dalai lama who wrote about empathy and compassion being skills that require practice um that that they're like muscles that require development Yeah, that's why you have to sometimes write, literally write down affirmations and put them in your face so that they can replace some of the negative thoughts like people are mean or, you know, like if if you start saying that all the time, that's going to create more of an adversarial way that you interact with people. So you have to maybe kind of fight against that by putting nicer messages or more optimistic messages in your face. Um, in order to change your everyday um, reactions and thoughts. So, and I keep doing that every day because I'm not, you know, completely there, actually. So I, I do have to keep kind of reminding myself, yeah, to to be hopeful. Because when you really look at environmentalism and animal rights and stuff, it really can be very depressing, especially with the species extinction and, and climate change and everything. It, it is hard to believe that humans have the the total willpower as a collective unit internationally to to turn it all around and especially now with these recent elections where people there seems to be a backlash you know against 
some things that lean more towards social justice and environmentalism, um, that makes it harder for us to believe there, there can be enough um, political will to have a more of a movement. And uh, so that's challenging because if we don't work together, this is not something we can't solve these problems just by being a nice person as an individual. We actually have to get our whole society together to change laws and work with other countries um, to radically change the way we operate so that we can share the planet with, you know, these millions of other species. And uh, yeah, so that, and that's no small task at all. It's very overwhelming. Well, and I think, you know, what you just said is, this is what rolls around in my mind. And I'm, I'm going to go on a minor rant here that has nothing to do with animals. Um, I, I believe in compassion. I believe in nonviolence. I believe that is how we will progress as a society and as, as a species, realistically. Mm-hmm. Um, because ultimately, we need to find within each other the thing that we identify as ourselves um, and come together. But... Then I, I I read from friends, uh, typically American friends, um, given the current political climate, who are women who are part of the LBG, LBGTQA community, who who are people of color and uh, immigrants, and they say, you know, you want me to be compassion, but there is someone out there who wants to do harm to me physically. Mm-hmm. And then the part of my brain kicks in, you know, reading back to Art of War, Churchill, um, all of these kind of texts saying, well, you have to be prepared to defend yourself and you have to do this. But that implies violence is an acceptable Mm. solution. And again, it's the circular argument that's constantly going around in my mind. But I think what you said is is very inspiring in that like day to day, we have to be compassionate, good people. We have to lead by example. But... That does not mean we do not speak out firmly, that we do not stand in front of people who may be at risk to prevent violence in that way. Yes. That we find solutions that mitigate or prevent that violent circle from beginning. Um, And it's finding a way to balance that, that belief in compassion with the realities of the world we see around us today. Um, and it is it is very harrowing at times to sit and consider and ponder, Ugh. particularly here in Hamilton where it's gray and dead um, and we have not seen the sun in a month, oh. um, which I'm going to blame on Trump too because why not? Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, and I think that it starts with these conversations, uh, whether it's, you know, over Skype on a podcast or around the dinner table or over a pint of – how am I going to make the world a little bit better today? Yeah. Or like, how can I use whatever advantages I have um, to help protect someone else who needs protecting humans and non-humans? I I think that's uh, the best use of our time really is kind of taking care of others. And, um, and so that, yeah, that requires courage and that act is compassionate, but it might be seen sometimes as a little aggressive because you're pushing on something. Um, but yeah, it certainly doesn't have to be violent. And in the nonviolence uh, class that I took in, in college related to sociology, they were always just saying that you use the least force possible to achieve whatever you know, you're trying to achieve. Meaning there might be sometimes where if someone is physically trying to beat you up, you have to kind of protect yourself, but that but you're not 
um, starting the fight and you're not, you know, hurting them any more than you need to, to get out of the way. Um, so I, I always, yeah, think about that, like just using the least force possible. And sometimes that even is true with, um, the campaigns that we put together. Like you don't start a campaign against, let's say a company's doing something to animals you don't like, you don't immediately boycott them or like you first, you start by going and trying to talk to them, you know, like, let's see if we can get you to change and like, but, but then it's only like you kind of amplify your campaigns in terms of the maybe aggressiveness or, um, the fact that it becomes more of an altercation, um, an adversarial relationship if they just don't cooperate, but you've given them opportunities. I mean, you've tried to express things. So you kind of only escalate to the point that it's necessary, but then still it doesn't need to be violent, but, um, you try to avoid conflict as much as possible in the beginning, give people a chance. Mm-hmm. And that's again, part of the compassion, but yeah, I feel that we may have strayed a bit, um, in our 20 minute interview here, <laughs> uh, uh, professor, uh, Packwood Freeman. Yeah. Um, but I think this is again, the kind of conversations we need to be having and finding a way to talk openly and honestly. Um, and one thing I'm curious about is your thoughts on temporarily walking away. This is something that I, I have heard about from many people. My wife, who is a, uh, an outreach worker um, and uh, works with uh, people with addictions, mental health disorders. I've heard from various other people in that kind of field that at a point, you need to be able to walk away and take care of yourself. Mm, yeah. Um, and I wonder, is that maybe sort of one of the last pieces in this conversation about compassionate communication um, and in, in looking inwards at ourselves to see bias um, and, and how we're perceiving things around us that we need to sort of sometimes say, I'm taking the weekend away from this issue. Oh, Um, definitely. as, As hard as it may be to admit, is that something that we need to do as part of our, ongoing regimen absolutely for your sanity for your own sanity because you're not going to do the movement any good if you burn yourself out in five years and i'm someone who's been working on animal rights issues now since the early 90s so it has been a long time and i've been vegan for 20 years and part of doing that is i um, watch a lot of comedy you know like that honestly that is an escape for me i give myself leisure leisure time i get plenty of sleep i love sleeping um, I take baths, you know, I eat chocolate. Like I do things to pamper myself and enjoy myself. Again, I try to avoid conflict as much as possible while I advocate for positive things. Um, because I, I don't want to be somebody who's filled with kind of, I don't want to be scared, you know, and I don't, I don't want a lot of, you know, that negativity, um, uh, in my life any more than I have to. So since I read and write about such serious things, a lot of the media I consume is comedy related, you know, because, um, like I love Will Ferrell movies and stuff because, um, that's the way I can help cope with the world. And, um, yeah, so that makes total sense to me. And, and I'm a big believer that you take care of yourself and you take care of others and you, but you have to do both of those things. Um, and so, yeah, but I, there's no shame in taking care of yourself. It's not selfish. It's really just self-preservation. And you're the main person who has to take care of yourself anyway. Who else is going to do it? To learn more about Dr. Packwood Freeman, read some of her reports, books, or other work, visit her academic page at gsu.academia.edu slash Freeman, or visit animalsandmedia.org.
That's all we have time for this week, folks. I want to thank everyone for joining us, and especially Dr. Carrie Packwood Friedman for engaging in such a thought-provoking conversation. Until next time, this is Michael Howie for Defender Radio, reminding you to stay informed and stay strong.